Well, we finished our study in the book of Romans, and I haven't decided if I'm going to be the teacher in the next uh, few months. I haven't decided yet what I want to teach. But in the meantime, well, I've got some lessons that I would like to present. One of them this evening is Christ and his deity and humanity. He was both divine and human. And uh, it's presumptuous for man to try to explain God. The finite cannot know the infinite. The creature cannot fully comprehend the creator. Even the mention of the subject causes apprehension simply because of the depth of the topic under discussion. Such a theme defies human intelligence. That's pretty clear. You just got to mark it down that you're not going to understand all about God. You're going to understand what he wants you to know, and that's it. <coughs> so such a theme that we're looking at this evening defies human intelligence. For he who is unfathomable in every respect, aspect of his being and nature cannot be contained in human thought or language. It just can't happen. It can't happen. Therefore, there could be no place for uh, dogmatism and certainly no uh, reason for uh, speculation. So the material uh, we will present for our study is designed to probe man's thinking. That's all it's going to be able to do. Let it probe your thinking. And to explore some of the uh, border country, the border lines of available information about the Godhead. So we're going to be talking about the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But to begin with, we want to start with Christ being uh, a deity and humanity at the same time. So God does want us to know, uh, uh, be known by his creatures. That's a fact. That's why he revealed what he did. His dealings with the nations of, of the past and, and all of his prophecies. That's the reason the Bible can be viewed as his autobiography, because that's what it is. It's a biography of himself that he wrote. And only that which he revealed about himself in Scripture can be offered as a valid portrait worthy of a prayerful and exhaustive study for man. Now first, it is important to see Christ in his eternal divineness. Nothing less and nothing more than his fellows in deity. Now that word fellows, the term fellow, is used advisedly because God himself first used that term to define his relation to the future Messiah. In Zechariah 7, verse 13 and 14. 
I want to read to you Zechariah 13, verse 1 and 2, and also verse 7 through 9, as it relates to Jesus being God's fellow, his equal. All right? As we're trying to understand this. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith Jehovah of hosts, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith Jehovah of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, It is my people, and they shall say, Jehovah is my God. All right, <clears throat> to begin with, Zechariah talked about uh, Messiah's day there. He's talked about when a fountain for sin and for uncleanness would be open to the Jewish people. That's how he started, verse 1. Christians sing a song that is inspired by this prophecy that says, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The prophet explained how the fountain would be opened, speaking of the sword of divine justice being employed to punish sin. There's three terms that are applied to Jesus in Zechariah 13 and verse 7. And you might want to underline them in your Bible. It's not going to hurt. You're not desecrating the Word of God by underlining and making notes in the Bible. It's yours. You paid for it, and it'll soon fall apart like most of them do. All right, Zechariah 13, 7. There's three terms that apply to Jesus. Shepherd is number one. Man, number two. And fellow, number three. Them terms in that language there speaks of Jesus. When God spoke about the man that is my fellow, in verse 7, saith Jehovah of hosts, he was speaking of the one who is also Jehovah. Jesus cited this verse and applied it to his apostles in Matthew's gospel. It says, Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended in me this night. For it is written, and here's where he quotes Zechariah, I will smite the shepherd, and Jesus is that shepherd that was smitten, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Matthew 26, verse 31. Now the sword there did not fall on the neck of the sinners, but upon their sinless sacrificial substitute who was Jesus. study, it's imperative that we look at the Old Testament names for God. 
The qualities by which Christians define the Godhead are impressive. Uh, but even so, they're still inadequate to describe him. Uh, we use, uh, the Bible uses such terms, and we speak of him as omniscient, omnipotent, omnipotent, eternal, spiritual nature, and immutable. But still, that does not define him. The names used by the Old Testament writers to identify God are not names in the classical sense of the term. In other words, uh, they're not traditional. They're not classical. They are rather definitions that reveal different aspects of his being. Now, my name is Burrow, and it was just a name that my dad evidently picked out, but it has no uh, direct meaning of anything about me necessarily. It's just a sounding moral. But the names that's in the Old Testament of God, those names bespoke of attributes about that one who was named. The most frequent title given to God in the Hebrew languages are uh, three. Elohim, Jehovah, and Adoniah, and we're going to look a little bit at those, the names of God. <coughs> Elohim. general and the son is under him and the Holy Spirit's under him and that's not what the Bible teaches we're going to deal with that if we've got time so these same names that's on the board here are also frequently employed in the Old Testament scriptures to define the future Messiah now this is really important because the Jehovah Witnesses uh, they want to claim that Jesus is a God and not God. And they do everything in their power to dethrone the Son of God. So look at the word, the name Elohim. Elohim is a plural noun. It talks about more than one, doesn't it? That's why it's plural. It's a plural noun. Elohim. If you mention Elohim, you're saying that there's more in it in Elohim than just one. Elohim is a plural noun taken from its etymological roots signifying the power of the Creator God because it's used in Genesis that way. In Genesis 1.1 it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God in the, is in the Hebrew Elohim. It's not God, it's Elohim. That's the 
That's the Hebrew word for this translated God. Significant information on that term can be gleaned from Genesis 1 and verse 26. It says, And God, Elohim, in other words, said, Let us make man in our image and after our own likeness. Now, all of the bold words cited after the word God are plural pronouns relating to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's in Genesis. The word image, when God said, let us, plural, let us, let Elohim create man in Elohim's uh, likeness or his uh, image. All right, that word image in the Hebrew, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, and you're not interested anyway. But I'll tell you what it means. It is a singular noun. Uh, here's the three Elohim, God, the, as we know him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our own image. That word image is singular. Uh, it's a singular noun conveying the concept of a shadow. Now this is interesting because as it was used in Psalms 24 verse 4, where it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Shadows do not have independent existence. Because shadows are the result of something or someone. And so shadows do not have independent existence. And God made us in his own image, a shadow. So man is simply a reflection of God's pre-existing reality. The plural noun Elohim uh, that was talking about a while ago is translated in its singular form as Eli or Eloi. Eli or Eloi, which is not any significance to you and me. Uh, as in Jesus' prayer to the Father. Remember, he cried out on the cross, Eli, Eli, my God, my God. All right, that's Matthew 27, 46. Mark 15, 24, uh, 34. So the psalmist recorded God speaking of the Son in Psalms 45, verse 6 and 7, using the plural Elohim. Now here's God in this psalm speaking of his son as uh, with the same name that he has, Elohim, <coughs> the creator God. And that's the us we find in Genesis. God said, let us, more than one, he's talking to somebody, let us make man in our image. And so we're a shadow of God. Notice that the Hebrew writer quotes this passage beginning with the phrase, but of the Son. And so he's talking about the Son here. Listen to it. But of the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, Elohim, is forever and ever. And the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. 
And therefore God, Elohim, thy God, Elohim, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And so speaking of Jesus, God declared him to be Elohim. <coughs> that's, uh, that's Hebrews 1, verse 8 and 9. Now let's look at the name, uh, the title, Jehovah. Jehovah is defined by God himself as uh, I am that I am. In Exodus 3 and verse 14. Now when that word is spoken to you, you begin to wonder what in the world is going on here. I am that I am. The word defines the self-existing and uncreated and the forever existing one. So what is Jesus? Well, we find out that he's Jehovah. He is the self-existing, uh, the uncreated, and the forever existing one. Now the Jehovah Witnesses want to have him born in Bethlehem of Judea, and that was his beginning according to their doctrine. They don't know any of this. And maybe you might get an opportunity to teach one of them. Who knows? So uh, he was known in Israel as the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. I am Jehovah thy God, who brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Exodus 20, verse 2. <clears throat> he was known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. In the Hebrew, that's El Shaddai. And God spoke unto Moses and said unto him, I am Jehovah, and I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, Jehovah, I was not known to them. Exodus 6, verse 2 through 3. And so to know God's names in history was for them to travel to a point to where God seemed fit to reveal another nature of his character. These are not just soundings like we give to our children today. If you look back in history, Johnson, the word came, that name come from the fact that this boy was born to John. And so he was known as John's son, Johnson. But that's just a sounding. And uh, it's a name that was taken from his father. But these names in the Bible of the Lord are definitions of his character, his personage, who he really was. He's the, the I am, that I am. The name Jehovah was frequently used in the Old Testament to identify the future Messiah. So in the Old Testament, you'll expect to read, and you will, in prophecy, uh, it'll speak of Jesus, the Messiah, as being the Jehovah. <coughs> in, uh, in Isaiah's account of his visit to the temple, here's what he said in Isaiah, the sixth chapter, in the first few verses. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And there's the Hebrew word Adoniah. I saw him sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Jehovah of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That doesn't mean they went around cussing. Unclean lips mean that they were speaking of things that was outside the realm of definitions of life and God, like men do. The whole nation we live in has unclean lips in regard to religion. For mine eyes have seen the King, Jehovah of hosts. Isaiah 6, 1-5. Now speaking about Jesus, the Apostle John said this, These things say Isaiah because he saw his glory. Now here, uh, John, the Gospel writer, he looks back and he quotes this very passage of Isaiah 6. And he explains to us who that Jehovah is or was in prophecy. He says, These things saith Isaiah because he saw uh, his glory and he spake of him, speaking of Christ. In Isaiah 9 and verse 6, the prophet sent both human and divine terminology to identify uh, the coming Christ. He said, For unto us a child is born in Bethlehem. Unto us a son is given at Calvary. Now it not only spoke of his birth, which was at Bethlehem, but it also spoke of him as being a, a son that was given. And in prophecy, what did that signify? God gave him at Calvary. He awoke his sword in Zechariah 13, verse 7, against his shepherd, who was Jesus. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, on Christ. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now these terms can only be understood in the light of the absolute deity of Christ. He can have no deity unless you see this in these terms of being spoken, uh, speaking of Him. These terms can only be understood in the light of the absolute deity of Christ coupled with His absolute humanity. Jesus was called in Isaiah 11, 1, a branch, a shoot out of the stock of Jesse, and a branch out of his roots shall bear fruit. Jeremiah later wrote of him when he said, Behold, the days come, saith Jehovah, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. 
and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called, Jehovah our righteousness. <coughs> Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. And so Jehovah spake of Jehovah our righteousness. Now that same terminology was repeated by Jeremiah in 33, 15. When Jehovah called him a branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness <coughs> in the land. The same one that he's talking about. Uh, Micah prophesied of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, saying of that city, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrath, which is uh, which art little to be among the thousands of Judah, out of thee shall one come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, and from everlasting. He's speaking about Christ. What's his goings and doings? From old, from everlasting. The Jehovah Witnesses, they got him down here just being born in Bethlehem and that was his first existence on the face of the earth. I'm telling you that, you can't get any dumber than that. They made a movie called Dumb and Dumber and they had to get Jehovah's Witnesses to play the parts. Because ain't nobody that stupid. And if you happen to be one, I apologize to you and hopefully you'll be smart enough to come away from the kind of doctrines. All right, behold, the days come, saith Jehovah, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. Uh, oh, I already read that. So Micah prophesied of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, saying of that city, in, in, in thou, uh, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephraim, which art little to be among the thousands of Judah, out of thee shall come forth one unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old and from everlasting. And he shall stand and shall feed his flock in the strength of Jehovah, in the majesty of the name of Jehovah his God. And they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth, and this man shall be our peace. Micah 5.2 and uh, also verse 4 and 5. <coughs> now let's look at this word Adoniah. Because all three of these is used for the Godhead, which is three. I realize I held up all of them, and I had to <laughs> And I ain't from Arkansas. Because you know the limit of their counting is their toes and their fingers. Ten. <laughs> I see Faye Reeves giving me dirty looks because there's some of us here that are from Arkansas. <laughs> Adonai. 
you got to be able to laugh at yourself, because everybody else is. <laughs> Might as well join them. Adoniah is a name often used of Messiah in the Old Testament. <laughs> the term Adoniah is most frequently translated in the Old Testament with the word Lord. In Psalms 110, for example, and verse 1, it is written, Jehovah said unto my Lord, and there's the Hebrew word Adoniah, Set thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now generally when the word Lord is used in the New Testament, it has reference to Jesus unless otherwise specified. Well, that's all I've got to say about the names uh, that, G, uh, that uh, the Father and the Son uh, hold together in regard to salvation's plan. Now let's look at the triunity. Uh, the word triunity is preferred to the term trinity. Now we're familiar with trinity. Trinity means three. Uh, but in Catholic circles, <coughs> trinity suggests that the Father is number one, the Son is number two, and the Holy Spirit is number three in the Godhead suggesting some kind of a hierarchy in heaven and that's not taught in the Bible and we've seen that so far from these names <coughs> it is worthy of notice that the traditional uh, monotheistic Jewish converts of the first century seem to have had no difficulty in believing in the three persons in the Godhead They did not reject John's statement that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1 verse 1. We'll see that next week in our study of John if we get verse, chapter 1 verse 1. Uh, so these Jews accepted Paul's statement in Philippians 2.6 concerning Jesus, where he said, who existing in the form of God, counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so what was Jesus? He was on equality with God. He was God's fellow. God said so in Zechariah 13, verse 7 a while ago. Fellow means equal. Shoulder to shoulder. No difference whatsoever. <clears throat> All right, so uh, these Jews embraced the, the truth given by Jesus that I and the Father are one. And that's what we've been aiming at. John 10 and verse 30. They accepted Paul's statement in Philippians 2, 6 concerning Jesus, existed in the form of God, he counted it not the being an equal with God a thing to be grasped. Talking about how he gave that up. He surrendered. Uh, uh, he gave up his uh, divinity to come to this earth to be a human. It is clear that the uh, uh, faith of the early Christians included the conviction presented in Colossians 2.9 
that deity and humanity were both seen in Christ. And here it is. His deity and his humanity. It says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, I've never had the opportunity to talk to Jehovah's Witnesses long enough uh, to get to a passage like this. Uh, they're generally up and out when they find out that you know anything about them. If you can spell Bible, they don't want to talk to you. And yet they use certain passages to befuggle you. Is that a word, befuggle? It sounds like a made-up word. To confuse I may have heard it somewhere. To confuse Probably you. from uh, books back there. <laughs> Paul affirmed of, of Messiah that he is, he says in Romans 9, verse 5, as concerning the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Finally, the Apostle John speaks of Jesus, uh, confidently declared, and we know that the Son of God has come and have given us an understanding that we know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. What John called Jesus? The true God. The one and only God. First, uh, 1 John 5 and verse 20. <clears throat> now let's go into a little bit of reasoning here. I hope you stick with me. How do Christians view these terms that we've just looked at? Do these words define a hierarchy in the Godhead? No, they certainly don't. Are they eternal features instructed uh, uh, in, in to their nature? Are they rather functions or roles, each performed as those offices relate to human redemption? Now, the Bible is a story of human redemption. And you've got to see this, that sometime back in uh, the beginning, these three in the Godhead had to decide who was going to be who in playing these roles out for our salvation. One had to be the Son, one had to be the Father, one had to be the Holy Spirit. But yet they're all one. Alright, <clears throat> consider the latter proposition as a feasible concept that could contribute something to the uh, meager insights into the hallowed uh, precincts of divinity. Speculation is not a good place to begin, such as an, an investigation, though sometimes it might add a little objectivity to the quest for insights. And that's what we're looking for is insights. That's why we're going into it. Consider the following possibility. In the eternities before time and before the creation of heaven and earth, the three co-equals God, and it's important to note that this word is singular. The word God is singular. It's not a name like Merle and Jack and Jill. Those signifies a 
separate person from me and me from them. But God is a family name. We'll see that. Because the word God means all present, ever, ever, all knowledgeable, and all powerful. Those are the attributes of God. And there's three in the Godhead. And so the eternities before time and before the creation of heaven and earth, the three co-equal God uh, discuss the creation of man in their unique image. In Genesis 1.27, let us make man in our image. And so they planned his free moral agency as a part of the definition of manhood, mankind himself. <clears throat> they knew in advance that man would abuse that freedom and would sin. There's nothing hid from God. When he came before Adam and says, why was you hiding? God knew why he was hiding. But that was revealed so that you and I, with our limitation up here, could understand what was going on. But God knew this beforehand. That's why he chose Christ and set up the cross for the Christ to die on before he ever made the worlds. I mean, add that together. Let's come on here and have a little common sense here. All right. Man could not save himself from the damage done to his position before God. If man was to be saved, God uh, would have to save him. The salvation uh, process would require redemptive functions uh, peculiar to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as we know them, as they're revealed to us. These functions define the unique roles that each person of the Godhead must assume. The concept of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit could be a single, uh, a simple communicating vehicle designed by the Godhead to instruct mankind about a heavenly nature he cannot understand without physical illustrations that he can relate to. And so the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are physical terms that we can relate to. We can understand them. God's desperately trying to reach us. To do so, he had to, there had to be a Father, a Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the three in the Godhead had no uh, discussion, had no problem as to who was going to be who. In the unfolding plans for redeeming, redeeming mankind from the fall, one of the Godhead would have to become a man. Because he, to be a mediator, Hebrews 9, verse 15 to 17, declares that he has to be one with, the, the, uh, with both parties. To be a mediator. And Jesus was that man. Well, that would require that he accept the infinite self-emptying of all the attributes, prerogatives, and privileges of his divinity. And that's why Philippians 2, 5 begins by saying that he thought it not a thing of robbery to be equal with God. But he emptied himself. 
He humbled himself to become a man. And so he, uh, he submitted his divine prerogatives to become a man like you and I, to represent us. He could not empty himself of his divine nature. That's impossible. But he could suspend the expression of it, and he did that. He suspended the expression of it. You can look back in your remembrance, in your readings, and Jesus stated always, I could do nothing without the Father. Uh, what the Father says, I repeat, I do. I'm here to present his word, his message. I'm an ambassador from him. As John says in John 1, 18, uh, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth, he has declared him. He was a declaration of the Father because they were one. And so uh, all he could do was suspend his expression of his divinity so that he could adopt for himself the nature of man to become a man. Now remember, the scriptures teach that he was tempted in all points like as we are. He suffered as we do in all points. In, in Hebrews 5, verse 8 and 9, he became the author of eternal salvation because of the things which he suffered. And so Jesus had to become human to suffer and to face the hostility of the devil and he whooped him with the faith that we spoke of this morning. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Because Jesus came back to the devil's temptation three times with it is written, it is written, it is written. And the devil had enough and he left for a season. He came back later through the Jews and other means, but he left because he got whooped with scripture. <laughs> now, that one of the Godhead would be known uh, prophetically in the Old Testament and known in fulfillment in the New Testament as the Son. In regard to Matthew 16, verse 16, where Jesus asked the Jews, Whom say ye that I am? Man does not know when or how the decision was made as, it, uh, as to which role each would fulfill. We know that the decision was made in the eternities before time and with the fall of full awareness of the devastating role into which the Son would be cast. He had to face the cross. He had to humble himself. Jesus humbled himself basically twice. He humbled himself in Philippians 2.5 being the creator of the universe. He humbled himself and emptied himself of his divine prerogatives so that he could become a man. And as a man, he humbled himself again to the cross. So, uh, initially this other one would confirm the mission the ministry and the message of the Son through a cluster of prophecies in the Old Testament. And we're talking about another one. 
There's three of them. Three ones. And we know them as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We've looked at the one, God the Son. He emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. He become a man. Uh, the other one now, another one of those three, uh, would have to authenticate the redemptive activity of the one now called the Son. I hope you're following me. Initially, this other one would confirm the mission, the ministry, and message of the Son through a cluster of prophecies in the Old Testament. And that's who we know as God the Father. He would then uh, empower the Son with miraculous power during His personal ministry on earth to confirm the Son's heavenly mission. And that's Hebrews 2 and verse 4. God also bearing them witness. And the them is the apostles and Christ. In verse 3. God bore them witness with signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost as God willed it. So we're talking about this uh, second one uh, in the Godhead. After the Son's resurrection, this one would inspire the chosen apostles to record on sacred pages the history of his earthly ministry and of his present heavenly function as the Son. Those chosen men did record over 60 years of inspired history of New Testament church to preserve God's redemptive purpose alive on earth. That other one would be the Holy Spirit. During his earthly ministry, uh, the Son would be subjected to the directions of the Holy Spirit and to the Father. And so the Son was submissive to the word of the Holy Spirit and to the Father. Of course, the third one would be the Father. He would direct, control, and govern all things only until the Son had accomplished the initial phase of the redemptive process. Then Beyond Calvary and at the beginning of the church on Pentecost, the Father would turn the government of everything over to the victorious, blood-stained, exalted, and now glorified Son. Jesus informed all mankind of this fact when he gave the Great Commission to the Apostles. In Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority has been given unto me, in heaven and on earth. Now this is delegated authority and not primal. This authority that he speaks of. In Hebrews, the author says of Jesus, God hath at the end of these days spoken unto us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the worlds, upholding or sustaining all things with the word of his power. Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 3. And in Colossians 1, 17, 
Paul affirmed that in Jesus all things consist. In other words, he holds all things together. You know the reason why we're not sucked out already into outer space and into that black hole? It's because Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. He upholds gravity and all things. You ate today at his expense. You drove your car at his expense. The technology that in it enables you to drive your car and have a V8 engine in it or whatever you got, and the gasoline and the development, all of that. God commissioned us to do that in Genesis. Go forth and subdue all things. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the world. You think that intelligence of building a, a, a motor uh, that works so good came from man? without God being with him. But all we can do is tell, talk about what man does. Oh, we built this and we know this and all of that. And yet we oversee the fact that God said, I'll be with you always, the end of the world. And he helps us in all of our difficulties, in all of our inventions, and in all of that. I'm 80 three years old and I'm still on the uh, level of trying to understand how in the world man could come up with a gasoline motor with all them parts that work in unison with one another <coughs> and deliver such power out the back end of a vehicle. Maybe you've never thought that far. Maybe you've never reached outside the realm of man and his stupidity. You know, we do a lot of bragging. Oh, America just whooped the fire out of Germany. No, they didn't. God did. Read Daniel 4, verse 32 sometime. It's God that sets up kings and brings them down, does according to his bidding in the armies of heaven. And no man stays his hand of action when he sets it to do something, nor do they call him into question as to what he does. He don't answer to the counsel of men. So after his resurrection, the role of Christ and the Holy Spirit were reversed from what they had been during his personal ministry. Because Jesus learned who he was and what his mission was from the revelation of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. But now after his resurrection, the Holy Spirit now uh, subsides to his authority. The Holy Spirit is now subject to Christ. That's John 16 and verse 13. As also are the angels of heaven. 1 Peter 3 and verse 22. Well, let me read these passages to you. John 16, 13. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all the truth, the Lord told the apostles. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. And in 1 Peter 3, verse 22, Peter said, Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject 
unto him, but as a man before his resurrection, he was in tune to the Holy Spirit. He said, I can do nothing of myself. What I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because it comes from the Father. So he played the role of man. He was in the shoes of man. He had to learn who he was and what he was here for through the scriptures. You see why at 12 years old he was so concerned that he left mother and father, Mary and Joseph, and uh, when they went down to pay taxes, and in the caravan back, they come up, he come up missing. And they came back and found him. And he was in the temple reasoning with the scholars of the law. And they were amazed at his understanding. And they jumped him about leaving him in suspense as to where he was at. And he said, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? And so Jesus learned from the scriptures, the same scriptures that you and I have. He learned from them his mission. He was a man. He had to be taught. Luke says in one passage that he grew in knowledge and in stature among men. He come to understand his mission. And he accepted it. Of course, his mother was telling him also for uh, 30 years or better, you know, until he went on his uh, redemptive purpose. Uh, his mother told him what the angels told her. His name will be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And he'll be Emmanuel, which the angel said by interpretation is God with man. Who is Jesus? Savior. And also God with man. All right. So after his resurrection, the role of Christ and the Holy Spirit were reversed from what they had been during his personal ministry. The Holy Spirit is now subject to Christ. We read those two passages. So Christ will reign over his kingdom until the final consummation of the salvation process. During the final judgment, Jesus will conduct judgment against uh, the, the delegated uh, with, excuse me, he will uh, conduct judgment again with delegated authority uh, for the Father, he says, gave him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man, John 5 and verse 27. And so he has that delegated authority even before he went to the cross. Uh, and because he went to the cross. And then what happens? Well, uh, look here at uh, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 through 28. But now has Christ been raised from the dead the first fruits of them that are asleep. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then they that are Christ at his coming. And then 
cometh the end. When he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy shall be abolished is death. For he hath put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he saith all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected, uh, accepted who did subject all things unto him. And when all things have been subjected unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subjected to him that did subject all things unto him, to this intent that God may be all in all. So Jesus, his sonship role and his uh, submission to the Father is not uh, derogatory to his duty. Neither during the days of his earthly ministry nor during the present glorious reign of as God, God man on earth, nor when he once again will be, uh, he will again submit himself, his sonship role to the Father, as First Corinthians text teaches. We just read all Scripture attests to the eternal deity of Jesus. Uh, there seems to be no scripture that states, demands, or implies his eternal humanness. In New Testament terminology, there are two ways men can become members of the house of God. 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. They can be born of God and thus become children of God. Or they can be the sons of God by the spirit of adoption. Uh, adoption is sons. Romans 8, verse 15, Ephesians 1, 5. Oh, at the point is significant for Jesus is never called the child of God. Now get that. He's never called the child of God. But rather he is consistently called the son of God which is an adaptive position in his relation to God. It's an adoptive position that he took. Christ accepted the role of the Son when he subjected himself to the Father by becoming one in nature with man. In that position, he became, Philippians 2 verse 8 says, obedient even unto death, yea, the death on the cross. His present uh, uh, explanation is the reward for that uh, submission. All his submission relates only to his role as a man. Submission to God for Jesus as a man is the proper role for man indeed for all men. And so he came and submitted himself to the Father. He emptied himself and humbled himself didn't think it a thing to be on equality with God on shoulder to shoulder. He become a man as you and I are. In our ignorance, in our uh, having to be taught, that's the nature of our life and that's the life that he took. The, 
The perfect man, Jesus, acknowledged that all he is and has is from God. This is the perfect man letting God be God and man be man. And that's what Jesus done. As Jesus has suspended the expression of his divine nature when he became a man, he now has suspended every expression of his human nature. Thus, he can return to be God all in all as he returns to the full expression of only his divine nature. And the conclusion to the lesson this evening is 1 Timothy 6, verse 14 through 16. And there Paul affirms the fact of Christ's return. And that's all i got to say about that, even though we are 14 minutes over. But God is a family name. There's three in that family that we know has been revealed to us. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all equal. They're all one. And yet they had three different roles to play. And sometime in the past, uh, before time began, they made the decision of who would be who. Which one would take on this responsibility of being the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's why we use the word triunity uh, rather than the word trinity. Because trinity has been worn out by the Catholics uh, in the Test, in their testimony that there's God the Father He's number one and the Son is number two and the Holy Spirit is number three that's not what the Bible teaches I think you've seen that and so we'll stand and sing our closing hymn <coughs> <coughs> Sing the wondrous love of Jesus, sing His mercy and His grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, He'll prepare for us a place. When we all get to heaven, for the day of rejoicing that will be. When we all Sing and shout the victory.